0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. My name is Catherine, as ever, I am your host. SDR 8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com and unfortunately this is my second attempt at trying to do this episode because I recorded this and I went to edit and all my audio had gone like whoop, 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 and I was like, oh oh okay so fingers crossed that my audio is good today um hoping 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 that this all works so I am here today to tell you well to answer a question the question I'm going to answer is who was Charles Dickens he was to start with an incredibly popular writer a quick Google tells us in terms of novels, Dickens's Tale of Two Cities is probably the second best selling novel of all time. About one in ten people in the UK owned a book by Dickens at the time he was writing. And that's not counting those who read his stories and in instalments or went to hear him give a reading. To appeal to a poorer audience, he published his books in serial instalments that were delivered in adorable green paper packages. And subscriptions to the Pickwick Papers, his first full-length book, were about thirty to 40,000 people, which is just an incredible amount. About 4 million copies of his books were sold in the UK following his death. Christmas Carol itself sold 6,000 copies in five days. Whether you like him or not, and I really do love Dickens, he was a giant of 19th century literature. He revived popular interest in Christmas and is a really big deal in terms of UK literature. As a person, he experienced being very rich and very poor. He was born in 1815 and Charles's family were pretty well off. His dad had a really good job as an administrator for the Navy. And when he was a little kid, he lived in the towns of Portsmouth and Chatham. He was pretty normal, he attended school, he loved drama, overall regular kid. But his dad dramatically lived beyond his means. And in 1824, his family were evicted and his dad was sent to debtor's prison. Basically, a debtor's prison its a weird Victorian thing. If you can't pay your bills, you get sent to prison along with your whole family and you have to stay there until your debt's paid. So if your family can go out to work, that's cool. If you've got a friend who's going to bail you out, that's fine, but it's just wretched dickens when he wrote his books drew a lot of description from his life so we do actually know how he saw it the book little dorrit which i think is my favorite dickens opens with a character the aforementioned little dorrit and her family living at the Marshalsea prison which is where um dickens and his family stayed this is from little dorrit 30 years ago there stood, a few doors short of the Church of St George in the Borough of Southwark, on the left-hand side of the way going southward, the Marshalsea Prison. It had stood there many years before and remained there some years afterwards, but it's gone now and the world is none the worse without it. It was an oblong pile of barrack building, partitioned into squalid houses, standing back to back, so there were no back rooms. Environed by a narrow paved yard, hemmed in by high walls, Julie spiked on top. Itself a close and confined prison for debtors. It contained within it a much closer and much confined jail for smugglers. Offenders against the revenue laws, defaulters to excise or customs who had incurred fines they were unable to pay, were supposed to be incarcerated behind an iron-plated door closing up a second prison, consisting of a strong cell or two. And a blind alley some yard and a half wide, which formed the mysterious termination of the very limited skittle ground in which the Marshalsea debtors bowled down their troubles. Little 12 year old Charles Dickens was sent off to work to try and sort out his dad's debt. He got sent to work in a blacking factory. Think like creosote you paint on a fence to stop it going off now dickens was quite cagey about this until he started working at a place called utopia sorry europa cottage which i will talk a little bit more about next episode well, who am i kidding i'm talking about it a next episode but this is what he said to his biographer he said the blacking warehouse was the last house on the left hand side of the way at old hungerford stairs It was a crazy, tumble down old house, abutting of course on the river and literally overrun with rats. It's wainscotted rooms and it's rotten stairs and staircase and the old grey rats swarming down in the cellars and the sound of their squeaking and scuffling going up the stairs at all time and the dirt and decay of the place rise up visibly before me as if I were there again. The counting house was on the first floor looking out over coal barges in the river. There was a recess in it in which I was to sit and work. My work was to cover the pots of paste blacking, first with a piece of oil paper and then with a piece of blue paper, to tie them round with a string and then to clip the paper neat and close, all round until it looked as smart as a pot of ointment from an apothecary shop. When a certain number of grosses of pots had attained this pitch of perfection, I was to paste on each a printed label, then go on again with more pots. Two or three other boys were kept at similar duty downstairs on similar wages. One of them came up in a ragged apron and paper cap on the first Monday morning to show me the trick of using the string and tying the knot. His name was Bob Fagan, and I took the liberty of using his name long afterwards in Oliver Twist. Biographers, like professional biographers of Dickens, Dickens, think that this was one of the most important things that happened in his young life he himself said i know i do not exaggerate unconsciously or and unintentionally the scantiness of my resources and the difficulties of my life i know that if a shilling or two were given to me by anyone i spent it on a dinner or tea I know that I worked from morning to night with common men and boys. I know that, but for the mercy of God, I might easily have been, for any care that was taken of me, a little robber or a little vagabond. He did pretty well for himself, though. He ended up having a very, very dramatic personal life. When he was 18, he fell in love with a lady called Maria Bedenell, who was not impressed with what Charles had to offer. At this point, he was largely skinned. He had a job writing down parliamentary notes and writing about them. And it was just, he didn't have a lot to offer her. Many years later, she wrote to him out of the blue and said, you know, oh, I wonder why it didn't work. And they had this, like, emotional, you know, Oh, I miss you, Violetta. And they arranged to meet up when his wife was out. And she'd said, oh, but will you still love me, Charles? I am old and fat. And he's like, oh, of course. And she turned up, and she was actually old and fat. And (laughs) then he ghosted her. (laughs) And if you read Little Dorrit, um, Arthur's ex is based on her because all the people from his books are based on real life. It, that kind of sums it up. He was a little bit of a dog when it came to women. He was married to a lady called Catherine who um, he married on The Rebound after Maria Now She was his wife for 20 years. He's presented as domestic, unchallenging, really supportive, supportive and she gave him 10 children plus some more that didn't survive because it's the Victorian era and child mortality is very very high after being with well being deeply in love with Maria he wanted someone who was kind of like fluffy for want of a better word but however in an absolutely brutal move he decided that they could not be together and he hired some builders to build a wall down their bedroom like this is your half this is my half and this is how we shall live in a letter to one of his best mates and again this is brutal He said about his wife, "'Poor Catherine and I are not made for each other, and there is no help for it. It is not only that she makes me uneasy and unhappy, but that I make her so, too, and much more so. She is exactly what you know in the way of being amiable and complying, but we are strangely ill-assorted for the bond that is between us. God knows she would have been a thousand times happier if she'd married another kind of man.' and that the avoidance of this destiny would at least been equally good for us both. I am often cut to the heart by thinking what a pity it is for her own sake that I ever fell in her way. If I were sick or disabled tomorrow, I know how sorry she'd be and how deeply grieved myself to think how we'd lost each other. But exactly the same incompatibility would arise the moment I was well again, and nothing on earth could make her understand me or suit us to each other together. Her temperament will not go with mine. It mattered not so much when we had only ourselves to consider, but reasons have been growing since, which make it all but hopeless that we should even try to struggle on. What is now befalling me, I have seen steadily coming. Ever since the days, you remember, when Mary was born, and I know too well you cannot, and no one can, help me. Well bit gloomy i mean we've all had bad breakups but <laughs> age 45 he fell for <laughs> Nellie turnan who was 18 years old and by 1857 he had publicly separated from his wife it was a bit of a scandal he took so much trouble to keep Nellie Ternan's secret from public view we As a result, we can't actually find that much about her. She gave up a career as an actress to be like his living girlfriend. But he, absolutely, pseudonyms, never in public, never seen together. And it's up to you whether you think that is a little bit creepy and controlling, or you think it's respectful and nice, or is it even really, is it love? I mean, like, you know, send me an email. There was a huge age gap between them very dramatic but then just to make me laugh a little bit his sister-in-law lived with them as well so this was kind of normal like if you had an unmarried female relative they'd sort of move in with you and be like a babysitter part of the family unless like till they got married and his sister-in-law um stuck stuck with him throughout this separation and he requested to be buried next to her not his wife not his girlfriend but then again like his girlfriend was still alive but he requested out of all the women in the world he will be married well he will be buried next to his sister-in-law um well i guess you gotta pick someone i suppose uh if you're gonna you know get get married to someone <laughs> get buried next to someone I don't know, why do I keep mixing up Married and Buried? I think it's that Nirvana song or it's Nick Cave, No More Shall We Part. Whatever, evidently I am concerned with those things. He also fundamentally wanted to make the world a better place. He hated the idea of individual initiative being restricted, especially by the upper class. He hated the idea of disciplining the poor. The... Reforms of the poor law had made welfare as disgusting as possible to access. Free market, unregulated capitalism meant that the callous belief that the poor had only themselves to blame was popular. This comes into play a lot in the next episode, which is going to focus on how he viewed the world. his agenda was to speak for those who were excluded he writes marginalized characters he writes about sex workers old people little kids people who wouldn't normally be in stories he believed that we all share a common humanity regardless of where we're from regardless of our social class our income i mean it's easy to say he's you know almost socialist and he isn't really he's quite conservative with a small c but he want he has this idealized vision of the past you know like oh before the factories came everyone was happy and that's what he wants to get back to this what's called sentimental conservatism speaking of sentimentality he loved christmas not like a little bit (laughs) So there's this legendary dude who has a Christmas lights display just down the road from where I grew up, from my parents' house. And it's like a semi-professional display and you can give a little bit of money for charity and walk around it. But he puts that up at like November. And that is, that is the Dickensy approach. He is the person who would put his Christmas tree up on the 1st of December. Which by the way, I completely disapprove of if it was up to my dad we'd put the christmas tree up on christmas eve and we'd take it down on boxing day i am a christmas misanthrope he it was such a big deal for him because it was everything that was good in the world in in dickens's point of view One of his first books was a collection of his sketches that he'd done of people he'd seen and met around London. And it's called Sketches by Boz. Boz is like his pen name. He did a whole one on Christmas. I warn you now, it is somewhat on the mawkish and sentimental side, but enjoy this. Christmas time. That man must be a misanthrope indeed in whose breast something like a joyful feeling is not roused, in whose mind some pleasant associations were not awakened by the recurrence of Christmas. There are people who will tell you that Christmas is not to them what it used to be that each succeeding christmas has found some cherished hope or happy prospect of the year before dimmed or passed away the present only serves to remind them of stra- reduced circumstances and straitened incomes of the feast they once bestowed on hollow friends of the cold looks that meet them now in adversity and misfortune never heed such dismal reminiscences there are few men who have lived long in the world who cannot call up such thoughts any day in the year then do not select the merriest of the 365 for your doleful recollections but draw your chair near the blazing fire fill the glass and send round the song and if your room be smaller than it was a dozen years ago or if your glass be filled with reeking punch instead of sparkling wine put a good face on the matter and empty it off hand and fill another and troll off the old ditty you used to sing and thank god it's no worse look on the merry faces of your children if you have any as they sit round the fire one little seat may be empty one slight form that gladdened the father's heart and roused the mother's pride to look upon may not be there dwell not upon the past think not that one short year ago the fair child now resolving into dust <laughs> right, right, right sat before you with the bloom of health upon its cheek and the gaiety of infancy in its joyous eye reflect upon your present blessings of which every man has many not on your past misfortunes of which all men have some fill your glass again with a merry face and contented heart our life on it but your christmas shall be merry and your new year a happy one all right all right, all right. That is literally one paragraph and in this one chapter they it's got to be about a thousand words about how much i love christmas and it's making me feel a little bit nauseous because i'm really not a christmas person <laughs> um so I, i'm just gonna give that up but if you go on gutenberger you can find sketches by buzz and you can find that <laughs> Oh, Dickens. What's interesting is, shortly after he died, his daughter, Mamie, Mamie, M-A-M-I-E, Dickens, did an interview that was turned into a book called My Father As I Recall Him. And in case you're thinking that he's just putting this on as a PR exercise, he's really not. If I just flick through, he goes, she says... He was a wonderful, neat and rapid carver, and I am happy to say taught me some of his skill in this. I used to help him in our home parties at Gad's Hill by carving at a side table, returning to my seat opposite him as soon as my duty was ended. On Christmas Day, we all had our glasses filled, and then my father raising his would say, Here's to us all! God bless us! A toast which was rapidly and willingly drunk. His conversation, as may be imagined, was often extremely humorous, and I have seen the servants who were waiting at table convulsed often with laughter at his droll remarks and stories. Now as I recall these gatherings, my sight grows blurred with the tears that rise to my eyes, but I love to remember them and to see, if only in memory, my father at his own table, surrounded by his own family and friends, a beautiful Christmas spirit." It is good to be children sometimes and never better at Christmas where its mighty founder was a child himself was his own advice. An advice which he followed both in letter and in spirit. He really, really liked Christmas. He was also, uh, for want of a better word, a hustler. He came from nothing. Like one step above being a street person. He... Used his talents to be a reporter and then to produce a product which appealed to the new urban public. Namely, the book in instalments. He set up magazines. He started theatrical productions. He did loads of charity work. He was an actor. Eventually, he realised that maybe the real money was coming from public performances so at a certain point the majority of his time was spent doing one-man readings or one-man shows of his books so for example for Christmas Carol all the long descriptiony bits he cut out and he focuses mostly on the dialogue he was apparently quite a talented actor and uh, used to do all the voices which I quite like he finally owned property he supported a family of 10 plus hangers-on plus extended family plus random associates he made it so christmas carol aside from being a vehicle for his agenda of help the poor it was also a little bit of a cash grab he was short of money he wanted a nice little product that he could sell at christmas wasn't in instalments. it was a pretty book a nice green cover had all the pictures inside and as well as it fitting in with kind of what he wanted out of a book it was also (laughs) mostly just written for money I would love to say it was some deep thing that was like all of his outpourings and believe me if one of the GCSE texts were um, great expectations if it was David Copperfield Oh my gosh we could go so deep but christmas carol kind of is what it is it's a short book it's about christmas it's a cash grab the poor are good that's all there is to it dickens was a hustler he was a businessman he did not write you know necessarily always out of the deep pits of his heart (laughs) but he frequently he wrote because he wanted money (laughs) to admit that it's one of these cliched things the um idiots put on twitter which is oh the english teacher says the poet used the word blue to like represent sadness but what if he just meant blue her <laughs> her english teachers are stupid um i'm so sick of seeing things like this by the way like rant over but with this one i've had to dig quite to get the beautiful analysis out of it because, yeah, he he wanted money, people wanted to read his books, he liked the subject. Oh my days. Anyway, next episode, I'm gonna be talking to you about things that he really, really, really did love, which were fixing the world, making the world a better place. One of the things about Dickens is I personally suspect he had ADHD because a lot of the the descriptions I have of his behaviour were so ADHD. Anyway, um, dude was incredibly active all the time and a lot of the charity work he was doing deserves its own podcast after that we are going to talk about the plot of a christmas carol and then we're going to talk about characters love this so str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com and i will speak to you very very soon